Wondery Plus subscribers can binge new seasons of American Scandal early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is a special encore presentation of our series on the standoff in Waco, Texas, which originally aired in 2020. It's an investigation of a shocking story that sparked a national debate about religious freedom and the power of the federal government. We hope you enjoy. A listener note, this episode contains references to adult content and language and contains material that some might find offensive. It's 10 p.m. on February 28, 1993. At a small airstrip outside Waco, Texas, a prop plane comes in for a landing. On board the plane, Gary Nessner leans back in his seat. He feels relieved because finally his long day of travel has come to an end. Nessner is an FBI hostage negotiator, and earlier today, while he was at home in Virginia, he got a call from the Bureau. He learned that a disastrous raid had just taken place in Texas, one that had turned into a bloody shootout. Federal forces had gone head-to-head with a religious group called the Branch Davidians, and in the end, four agents were left dead, with nearly 30 wounded. As the plane touches down, Nessner files away a stack of folders and snaps his briefcase shut. He spent the entire flight reading up on the incident, and he's quickly becoming an expert on the Davidian leader, a man named David Koresh. Koresh and more than a hundred of his followers are still holed up in the compound. They're heavily armed, and six of their members were killed in the shootout. Ending this standoff is now a top priority for President Clinton's Justice Department. And now that Nessner is finally on the ground, it's time to get to work. Nessner steps out of the plane and into the cold February night. He's in his early 40s with a round face and hazel eyes. He's been with the FBI for about 20 years, and as a hostage negotiator, he has a reputation for diffusing volatile situations. But from what he's read, talking down David Koresh will be no easy task. A young man in an FBI windbreaker greets Nessner. The two of them head from the tarmac and into a large building near the runway. Inside, technicians are rushing about. They're installing computer stations and setting up phone lines. A bank of monitors plays the ongoing national news coverage. Nessner is shown into a small office where a hulking man with a mustache hunches over a table. The man greets Nessner with a firm handshake. Jeff Jamar, special agent in charge. Gary Nessner, sir, chief negotiator. Well, Nessner, we got quite a mess. And it'll be the FBI's to clean up. We're just waiting for official word from Washington, and then we're taking over. I'm sure the ATF is thrilled with that. Nessner grins at Jamar, because he knows the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is not happy to lose control of the operation. Oh, they're furious. They want to finish what they started, but I have word from the acting attorney general. The case will be ours before the end of the day. Sir, I'd like to make contact with Koresh immediately if I can. He's, he's angry at the ATF. Let's use that to our advantage. Make the ATF the bad cop. We'll play good cop. Of course, that'll mean we have to limit any show of force. Jamar cuts him off. Nassner, federal agents have been killed in cold blood. We'll do whatever it takes to end this, and that includes using force if necessary. I appreciate that, sir, but my top priority is a peaceful surrender. Apparently, Koresh has been talking about this battle for years, so if we go on the offensive, we'll lose our last chance to get his followers to surrender. They'll think he was right all along. Jamar shoots Nessner a cold look. My job is to bring David Koresh to justice. You understand that? Nestor swallows his frustration and nods. It's clear he'll need to secure a surrender quickly. 
The longer Koresh holds out, the more eager Jamar and his team will be to rush in after him. And at that point, a man like Koresh could be capable of anything. An attack on the agents or a mass suicide. More than anything, Nessner wants to prevent any more bloodshed. The ATF already made deadly mistakes at Waco. The FBI can't afford to do the same. Lives are at stake, both inside and outside Mount Carmel. And this time, the whole world is watching. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Scandal. On February 28, 1993, the ATF launched a raid on Mount Carmel despite being warned that they'd lost the crucial element of surprise. David Koresh and his followers were ready for the attack. The result was the longest firefight in the history of American law enforcement. By the end of the day, four ATF agents and six Davidians were dead. With the killing of federal agents, the FBI took the leading role in ending the standoff. Their goal was to bring David Koresh into custody. At the same time, the Bureau wanted to ensure the safety of those inside Mount Carmel, including more than 40 children. But the FBI would have to contend with David Koresh and the decisions that Koresh would make for his followers. This is Episode 5, Broken Promises. It's before dawn on March 1, 1993, day two of the standoff at Mount Carmel. Even at this early hour, the FBI command post on the outskirts of Waco is humming with activity, quiet conversations, hurried footsteps, and clacking keyboards. At a small conference table, Gary Nessner rubs his eyes, which burn with exhaustion. Nessner hasn't slept since he arrived in Texas. He hadn't had the time. He's already been on the phone with Koresh and expressed his wish for a peaceful end to the standoff. Koresh spent most of the conversation talking about his anger at the ATF. Now at the command post, Nessner is reading materials and looking for clues, anything that might help the FBI better understand Koresh's psychology. Because if they can understand David Koresh, they'll be in a better position to bring the standoff to a close. Nessner hears footsteps and looks up to find a tall man in his mid-40s. The man introduces himself as Byron Sage, and he's from the FBI office in Austin. Sage fills in Nessner as quickly as possible. He explains that he spent hours on the phone with Koresh, helping negotiate the ceasefire. He also secured the release of four children from Mount Carmel. Nessner grabs a pen, starts jotting down notes. He asks exactly how Sage pulled it off. Sage takes a seat and continues. He says the main thing Koresh seems to want is access to the media. Koresh is intent on spreading his biblical message. He only released the first four children after the FBI promised to have a local radio station broadcast a verse of scripture. Nessner taps his pen as he considers a plan. Then he looks back at Sage. They should keep pursuing this angle, he says. It could lead to a full surrender. And then Nessner makes an offer. He wants Sage to lead a team of negotiators. It'll be tough negotiating with someone like David Koresh, but together, their teams can find a peaceful solution. Nessner yawns and rubs his eyes, and Sage grins. He tells Nessner to find himself a place to lay down and take a nap, but Nessner brushes him off. I'll sleep when this is all over, he says. 
Later that evening, Gary Nessner enters a cramped room inside the FBI command post. This is the negotiation room Nessner quickly assembled after he touched down. And while it's small, it gives his team a quiet place to talk one-on-one with David Koresh. Nessner slips on a headset and listens as Koresh talks live with a negotiator. Right now, Koresh is upset that the FBI cut his phone line to the outside world. The world needs to hear his message, he says. Then Koresh pauses, and he makes an offer. He's willing to surrender, along with everyone else inside Mount Carmel, but only if the government agrees to put his message on national radio. Nessner's eyes go wide. He didn't expect this kind of breakthrough so early. He waves to the negotiator and signals for him to pursue this. And so the negotiator asks what sort of message Koresh wants to convey. Koresh answers immediately. He wants to talk about the book of Revelation, the book of the Bible that deals with Armageddon. The negotiator proceeds cautiously. He wants an assurance that this won't be some kind of farewell statement, followed by a mass suicide. Koresh bristles at the suggestion. That's not what he's after, he says. He just wants to share the Lord's message of salvation. The agent makes a counteroffer. Koresh could record his message on tape for the FBI to review, then broadcast. If they can agree to something like that, they just might have a deal. But Koresh could do something to help sweeten the deal, the negotiator says. If he sends out more children now, he'll build up greater trust with the FBI bosses. Koresh considers and agrees. He'll send out more children, along with the tape. Negotiator signs off, and Nessner gives him a thumbs up. Nessner knows that this is exactly the approach they need to take. They have to stroke Koresh's ego while gently pushing him toward a surrender. Nessner removes his headset and rushes out of the cramped negotiation room. He can't wait to share the good news, and while he knows that some of the FBI will look skeptically at this deal, this is their best shot to end the standoff peacefully. Inside Mount Carmel, David Koresh hangs up with the negotiator. He slowly shifts his position on the blankets. Another spasm of pain racks his body, and he grits his teeth. His wound is still seeping badly. He feels even more lightheaded than before. And yet he's barely had a moment to rest. He's been organizing his followers, telling them where to bury the dead, how to operate a night watch, and now the FBI is on the phone day and night. Koresh feels woozy and slow, and now it's more certain than ever. He knows he's dying and must say goodbye to his followers. He calls Steve Schneider to his side and asks him to bring the people to him one by one. First the men, then the women. He also tells Schneider to spread the word about their exit plan. God has brought them all through the attack. Now they're leaving on their own terms. It's a victory. Koresh begins paging through his Bible, picking out passages for his sermon. And soon he hears the voices of his followers. Some are weeping. Others sound joyous as they learn the news about the upcoming surrender. Soon the male followers begin to file past Koresh. He smiles weakly as he gazes at his flock the followers he's grown to know and love, David Thibodeau, Wayne Martin, Steve Schneider. Soon, the women are at his side. Koresh's wives come first, Rachel bending low to kiss him, Michelle smiling through tears. Sheila Martin reaches Koresh, and he says that before the full surrender, Sheila will need to send out her three youngest children. Sheila looks at him fearfully and lowers her eyes and nods her head. Early the next morning, at 3 a.m., Sheila Martin stands with her family in the entry hall of Mount Carmel. Everyone in the compound has gone to sleep. 
Sheila glances at the front door, which is riddled with bullet holes. Her breath grows labored, and she turns to her husband, Wayne. Sheila is terrified to hand their children over, but Wayne has assured her that Koresh is making the right decision. It's hard for her to believe, but she trusts Wayne, and she knows Koresh is trying to protect the women and children in Mount Carmel. Sheila looks down at her 10-year-old son, Jamie. The plan is to bring him out first. Jamie sits in his wheelchair, waiting. He was crippled and blinded by meningitis when he was an infant, and Sheila's heart breaks at how much suffering he's already endured. Yet now he looks peaceful and calm. Jamie's brothers and sisters kiss him on the forehead and say goodbye. He turns and smiles at them. Sheila then takes a deep breath and scoops up Jamie's frail body. She carries him through the doorway, and Wayne follows behind her, pushing the wheelchair. Sheila walks slowly toward the armored car where the FBI men are waiting. She sings softly to Jamie. He's always been calmed by music, and she tries to keep her voice from breaking. When she reaches the vehicle, an agent stretches out his arms and takes her son away with surprising gentleness. Wayne sternly reminds the man that they'll be expecting updates on Jamie's safety. The agent assures him they'll take good care of the boy. Sheila chokes back a sob. These strangers will be Jamie's new reality, and she'll have to do the same terrible exchange with her six-year-old son and four-year-old daughter. They'll go out in the morning, along with a tape of Koresh's sermon to the world. Sheila prays the surrender will come quickly and that she'll see her children again soon. Koresh has spoken often of the sacrifices necessary for salvation, but Sheila never imagined that giving up her children would be one of them. It's 2.30 p.m. on March 2nd, day three of the standoff. In a hallway in Mount Carmel, Steve Schneider sits near David Koresh. A small radio is positioned between them. The two listen to the last words of Koresh's sermon, which is playing on the Christian Broadcasting Network's radio station. Schneider breathes a sigh of relief. The world has heard David's message. The FBI has fulfilled their end of the deal. Now all that's left is for Koresh and his followers to surrender. Soon... They'll march out in front of the news cameras, ready to share whatever fate God sees fit. Schneider looks over at Koresh. The prophet is staring into space, his eyes glassy and distant. Schneider tells Koresh he's going to make sure the people are ready and receives a slight nod in response. Schneider hurries to the women's dorm, looking for Judy. She was shot in the hand during the raid, and he's eager to get her to a hospital. He finds his former wife sitting on the bed, holding a two-year-old girl. Judy had this blonde-haired girl with David Koresh. When Schneider first heard that Judy was pregnant, he could have killed Koresh. But since then, Schneider has come to love the girl like his own daughter. He wants to make sure she gets out safely. Schneider continues to the lobby, where a crowd of followers is already waiting expectantly with their packs on. Schneider takes a deep breath. It's time to get moving. He picks up a phone and calls the FBI. Schneider tells them that everyone's ready. All that is left is to get Koresh into a stretcher. He knows the FBI can hear the relief in his voice, but he doesn't care. He just wants this ordeal to end. Schneider hurries back up to the hallway. Koresh sits there alone, his eyes glazed over with pain. Schneider speaks gently. David, everything's ready downstairs. The guys will come up with a stretcher and load you on. Don't, don't bother with the stretcher. Come on, David, you need a stretcher. You can't walk out here in your condition. Koresh pauses and with a faraway look, he strokes his own face. Steve, we're not going anywhere. Call it off. Schneider steps back, stunned. What? Dave, Dave, no, no, everyone's ready to go. The FBI is waiting. God spoke to me, Steve. He told me to wait. 
Schneider feels his legs and arms go weak. He starts to shake. But David, we made a deal. You said so on tape. If your sermon was broadcast, we'll surrender. If we back out now, the world will think we're liars. You've always had such limited vision. Who cares what a bunch of non-believers thinks? This is God's will. We're staying here. But David, what do you think the FBI is going to do now? We can send out a few more kids later tonight. That'll buy us some time until God tells me the next step. Schneider wants to say more, wants to argue and shake some sense into David Koresh. But he stops himself. He then turns from Koresh and walks slowly down the stairs. The people gathered in the lobby look up, and right away they can see that something's wrong. Schneider breaks the news and sees the shock and fear ripple through the congregation. He can't help but feel responsible. After all, he personally recruited a number of these people. He invited them to share in a heavenly salvation. But if David is truly delivering God's word, the Lord has instead condemned them to a terrible fate. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. It's March 2nd, 1993, and day three of the standoff at Mount Carmel. In the FBI command post, Gary Nessner surveys his team. They look tense and nervous. For hours, they've been huddled together, waiting for the Branch Davidians to march out of Mount Carmel. The chosen hour has come and gone, and still the Davidians remain inside the compound. Nessner squints at a video monitor. Still no sign of movement. Suddenly, the radio crackles. It's a member of their tactical team, the elite agents trained in hostage rescue and battlefield tactics. He's demanding an update. Nessner tells the agent that they've been trying unsuccessfully to get Steve Schneider on the phone. They're calling again now. Nessner gives a thumbs up to a negotiator who rings the compound. Schneider's voice finally comes over the line. He sounds nervous and apologetic. No one is coming out, he says. The Lord spoke to Koresh and told him to wait. The deal is off. Nessner wants to scream, but he fights to contain his anger. He needs to try and salvage the deal. He scribbles a quick note to the negotiator, telling him to remind Schneider that the FBI held up their end of the bargain. The negotiator then tries to get David Koresh on the phone. Schneider says that Koresh is busy praying and hangs up. Nessner feels his frustration slide into panic. His team did everything right, but he knows they'll be blamed now that Koresh has backed out. He has to move quickly and contain the fallout. Nessner stands, telling his deflated team to radio the tactical team. The surrender is officially off. He hurries out of the room and races through the command post looking for Jeff Jamar, the special agent in charge. When he reaches Jamar's office, he encounters another man, Dick Rogers, the head of the tactical team. Both men look furious. Nessner relays Schneider's message. It's a huge disappointment, he concedes, but this setback shouldn't change the goal of ending the standoff peacefully. At that, Rogers jumps. He accuses Koresh of deliberately toying with the FBI. He's furious and wants to move tanks onto the property as a show of force. Jamar nods in agreement. All day, he says he's been glowing to the media about this surrender deal. Now he has to walk it back at the press briefing. 
The FBI brass will be furious. Even President Clinton will have to answer questions about this screw-up. Nessner tries to calm them. He reminds them that his team was able to get a few more children out this morning, plus two older women. That victory cannot be discounted. Even without a mass surrender, a trickle of exits could become a flow and then a gush. They need patience, not aggression. Rogers flushes, looking even angrier than before. He says he's having none of it. They should stop dawdling. His people can get in there and secure the compound in 15 minutes. Jamar jumps in. He says it's still too soon for that, but agrees it's time to tighten the leash and teach Koresh a lesson. Koresh will give in once they apply enough pressure. Nessner protests, but Jamar has made up his mind. The tactical team will drive their tanks and armored vehicles around Mount Carmel. They'll set up in offensive positions. Nessner tries to stop them, but he knows it's too late. There's no turning back this show of force. It's March 3rd, the fourth day of the standoff. In the afternoon, Steve Schneider looks out from one of Mount Carmel's second-floor windows. Schneider watches as clouds float off in the distance. He's trying to ignore the terrible thunder coming from below, where another government tank is crisscrossing the yard. Already, these tanks have leveled two of the buildings of the compound. They cut a mobile home in half just for fun. The tanks crushed a truck in the parking lot and even ran over the kids' go-karts. Schneider can't make sense of it. The negotiators seem like honest people, but they're still on the side of these tank-driving warriors, men who will stop at nothing to persecute God's people. Schneider turns from the window. He sees Koresh sitting in the hallway with a few of the faithful gathered around him. Schneider is glad to see that Koresh seems more energetic today. Anger at the FBI has helped revive the prophet. Koresh addresses the followers. He tells them that he's already sent 20 children out of Mount Carmel. He's played by the FBI's rules, and still, Koresh says, the government forces are punishing them. Koresh told the FBI about God's commandment, that the community needed to wait inside Mount Carmel. Koresh's voice rises again, but instead of respecting the people's faith, the FBI sent in tanks. It just goes to show that the earthly forces cannot be trusted. Schneider sees most of the people nodding in agreement. Koresh then dismisses his followers and beckons Schneider closer. He asks how this morning's call with the FBI went. Schneider says he delivered Koresh's complaints. The tanks were destroying their personal property, and in doing so, they were destroying the evidence of the ATF's original attack. The negotiators apologize, but they said that the tanks weren't under their control. Koresh shakes his head angrily. The government might think they have all the power, Koresh says, but one thing is certain. The FBI will not be getting any of his children. He gives Schneider a fierce look. The children he's fathered are divine beings, he says. They will sit with him at the final judgment. They must share his fate on this earth. Schneider swallows hard. He understands that Koresh's prophecy must be fulfilled, but the thought fills him with dread. It's March 7th and the eighth day of the standoff. Gary Nessner rides the elevator down from his hotel room in Waco. He's bleary-eyed after just a few hours of sleep. The elevator door dings open, and he sees the lobby is filled with even more reporters than yesterday. Newscasters and suits chat with each other while cameramen lug heavy bags of equipment. Nessner hurries to reach the front door, grateful that he's not the one in front of the cameras at the daily press briefings. As Nessner drives to the FBI command post, he looks out across the brown Texas prairie. He feels far from his home and family in Northern Virginia. He misses them. And the feeling is even harder because right now he feels embarrassed for the FBI. 
The entire world has been watching as FBI tanks tear apart Mount Carmel. One day, a reporter asked an FBI agent to explain the destruction, and all the agent could manage was a cheeky response, saying that, hey, they're FBI agents, not professional tank drivers. Nessner reaches the command post and heads toward the negotiation room. It's been five days since Koresh backed out of the surrender deal, but Nessner has no time to hold grudges. And thanks to the tactical team's aggressions, he no longer has the upper hand. Instead, the negotiators have spent their time apologizing. Recent discussions haven't yielded much progress either, so Nessner has decided to shift their strategy. He needs to rebuild trust at Mount Carmel, and he has a sense about who he needs to talk to. The next day, inside Mount Carmel, Julie Martinez sits on her bed, combing her daughter Aubrey's hair. Her three-year-old plays with stuffed animals on the floor when there's a knock on the door. Steve Schneider pokes his head into the room and says that FBI negotiators are on the phone and want to talk to Julie. Steve adds that David said it was okay. Martinez's heart races. She's known this call was coming, and she feels a mix of hope and dread. The last time she spoke to the FBI, they tried to pressure her to leave with her children, and she refused. All Martinez wants is to be together with her kids, but she can't imagine the government allowing that if she left the safety of Mount Carmel. Still, the FBI agents keep pressuring her to leave, and so Martinez asked if she could speak to her older brother about the decision. The FBI agreed, but only under a specific condition. They would find her brother and have him record a message for her. Martinez doesn't trust these officials, but she hopes she can hear her brother's voice. If he's able to take care of the children, then she'd be willing to risk coming out. That way, even if she's thrown in jail, her kids would still have family. Martinez puts the phone to her ear. An agent greets her and says that they were able to find her brother and they have a recording to play. There's a click, and then Martinez hears her brother's kind voice come over the line. She feels a surge of hope, but the feeling quickly fades. Her brother says that he isn't capable of caring for her children. He says he loves her and has some advice. Surrender so that her family can be safe. The tape recorder clicks off, and her brother's comforting voice gives way to silence. The FBI negotiator's back on the line. Julie, I think your brother's advice is wise. Bring the children to safety now. Why wait? Because if we come out, I'll go to jail. That's not true, Julie. You said you didn't do anything. You and your children will be coming to safety. Martinez remembers the bullet she saw flying over her daughter's head the day of the raid. How can I believe anything you say? You don't want to help. You're just waiting for the right time to come in here and kill all of us. Wait, what, Julie? Why why would we want to do that? Because that's what they wanted in the first place. They came shooting at us and climbing in our windows. Okay, now look, there were some things that shouldn't have been done, but... Martinez hears the negotiator take a deep breath. But, but Julie, how would you want this to be resolved? What do you want to happen? For God to come and deliver us from our enemies. And at that, Martinez hangs up the phone. She's glad she told the agent the truth. These people love to make her feel like a bad mother, but she's not a bad mother. She loves her kids. She got off drugs for her kids. And Mount Carmel is the one place where they can be together. It's where her family will stay, no matter what the government does. American Scandal is sponsored by Audible. A room locked from the inside. A dead body, but no signs of injury or struggle. The deceased, a devoted family man, successful industrialist, and generous philanthropist. Everyone around him seemingly innocent, but hiding a secret past. In four sentences, I've grabbed your attention. 
And this is the power of classic mysteries and thrillers from Audible, like Esquire Magazine's number one best mystery novel of all time, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. As an Audible member, you can choose one title every month to keep forever from the entire catalog of classics, bestsellers, new releases, and Audible originals, ready for listening whenever, wherever on the Audible app. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash AS or text AS to 500-500. That's audible.com slash AS or text AS to 500-500. It's late afternoon on March 8th, 1993, day nine of the standoff. Gary Nessner is sitting in the FBI command post when a member of the tactical team walks in. He hands Nessner a VHS cassette. From Koresh, he says. Nessner tells the negotiators on duty to pause their work and gather round. He pops the tape into the VHS player and presses play. For a couple seconds, there's nothing but static. Then David Koresh appears on the screen. It's the FBI's first view of him inside the compound. He wears a white tank top and sits up against a wall. His eyes are half-closed and his voice is strained, but he makes an effort to seem welcoming. Kresh begins by thanking the negotiating team and then introduces them to his family. And we just thought we'd kind of break the ice and allow people to see just exactly, you know, what kind of people we have here. I'd like to start off, first of all, with my oldest son, his name is Cyrus. Boy with long blonde hair jumps over Koresh's legs and settles in beside him. He smiles shyly and waves at the camera. Koresh goes on to introduce his two-year-old daughter and then talks about the other families that live inside Mount Carmel. Soon he signs off and the VHS goes back to static. Nestor looks around at his team. They all look shaken by the raw intimacy of the tape. Koresh has put a human face to the people inside Mount Carmel. Nessner decides he needs to say something. Koresh, he says, may be a master manipulator, but it's a hopeful sign that he made this tape. He may be starting to see that they're not all enemies. If the team can find a way to build on this, they might have a chance of getting everyone out, including those young kids they just saw on screen. Byron Sage speaks up. Sage, who leads one team of negotiators, has built goodwill with the Davidians. He suggests that he go up to the Mount Carmel property and meet the Davidians in person. Koresh is obviously too injured to come out, but if Sage can meet with Schneider face-to-face, -face, it could help show that the negotiators are serious about reaching a peaceful solution. Nessner says he likes the idea. Could be a major step forward. It's the afternoon of March 15th, now over two weeks into the standoff. Steve Schneider steps out from the bullet-riddled front door of Mount Carmel. He's wearing a windbreaker against the crisp spring breeze. Wayne Martin walks beside him, dressed in the same suit he wore for legal trials in Waco. Together, the two men head toward a neutral point between Mount Carmel and the federal perimeter. Schneider keeps his pace slow and steady. The last thing he needs is for the FBI to panic and start shooting. He looks out at the prairie surrounding Mount Carmel and sees an unrecognizable crisscross of ruts, tracks created by tanks. Just this morning, the Fed sent in a horrifying new vehicle. It looked like a cross between a tank and a bulldozer probably could have demolished Mount Carmel in a matter of just hours. But it didn't stop there. They also installed high-powered lights. Mount Carmel now looks like it's sitting on a 50-yard line of a football stadium. All this harassment makes Schneider deeply angry. But he and Wayne Martin have still chosen to meet with the negotiators. Schneider needs to see for himself how sincere these guys really are. 
If he trusts them, maybe he can convince Koresh to trust them as well. It's his only hope for getting everyone out alive. Schneider stops in the middle of the prairie with Martin beside him. There's a Bradley tank about 20 yards away. Up close, it looks even bigger than he imagined. Schneider watches as two men step out of the tank and walk towards them. He recognizes one as a local sheriff. The other must be Byron Sage. When the government men arrive, they all shake hands. There's an awkward silence, and then Schneider launches in with his frustrations. He asks Sage, why is it every time they seem to be making progress with their talks, the Davidians end up getting punished? Sage apologizes. Schneider thinks he looks genuinely sorry. But then Martin cuts in. He says the tanks are destroying evidence of the ATF raid. How are the people inside supposed to get a fair trial? At that, the sheriff jumps in. He says it's time for common sense to prevail. If everyone comes out peacefully, he will ensure a fair trial. He says he has no interest in helping the feds. He just wants to see everyone in Mount Carmel safe. Martin looks skeptical, but Schneider believes the sheriff. Sage then brings up a timeline for surrender. Schneider cuts him off. He appreciates them coming, but he can't commit to anything without Koresh's approval. Sage begins again with more urgency. He says his superiors are getting impatient, and they have ways of forcing Mount Carmel's surrender. Schneider looks over at the menacing tank. It makes him shudder, but he remains resolute. Just like Sage has his superiors, he has his own. He says that he'll talk with Koresh, but for now there will be no timeline. He thanks him and the sheriff for their time, then turns back towards Mount Carmel. The next day, Gary Nessner stands outside the FBI command post with a cup of coffee, taking a rare break and enjoying the spring day. Across the tarmac, he spots a man he doesn't recognize meeting with members of the tactical team. When the meeting breaks up, the man approaches Nessner and introduces himself. His name is Richard Schwein, special agent in charge of the El Paso division. Nessner's chest tightens as he considers what this means. Another supervisor trying to call the shots. Nessner looks at Schwein in disbelief. At least two other supervisors wear suits and ties, he thinks, but Schwein is wearing a SWAT team jumpsuit and even has a canteen attached to his belt. It's like he's John Wayne in a World War II movie, Nessner thinks. Nessner introduces himself as the chief negotiator, and Schwein gives a quick snort. He says that there's no use talking to the Davidians. The FBI needs to go in, and go in hard. That's how they'll win. Nessner begins to protest, but Schwein excuses himself and marches off to meet with the other members of the tactical team. For a moment, Nessner stares in disbelief. Then he throws the rest of his coffee into the trash. So much for a relaxing break. He just hopes this commando doesn't gain too much influence with the decision-makers at the FBI. Later that evening, Nessner is wrapping up a long day at the command post when a member of the tactical team pulls him aside. The agent is concerned about a new plan for the night shift that Schwein just announced. He plans to install giant speakers all around the compound and play tortuous sounds at high volume to wear down the Davidians. The ideas so far include dentist drills and the song These Boots Are Made For Walking. Nessner thanks the agent for the warning. He checks the clock, it's already late. His heart starts to pound because this plan to torture the Branch Davidians could start at any moment. Nessner hurries to Jeff Jamar's office, hoping he can stop it in time. Nessner approaches Jamar and tries to remain calm. Sir, sir, did you approve this plan from Schwein? The speakers? Yeah, sure, why not? Schwein says the army did this. That's how they got Manuel Noriega out of his compound in Panama. With respect, sir, uh, Schwein does not know what he's doing. 
This is not an FBI-approved tactic. It will be devastating to negotiations. We're building trust, a trust that just can't... You and your team are moving way too slowly, Nessner. We need to ratchet up the pressure and end this thing. Taxpayers are spending more than a hundred grand a day for what? So you and me and the rest of the FBI can screw around on this miserable prairie while you negotiate? Nessner takes a moment to gather his thoughts. Sir, Schwein's plan will only provoke the Davidians. The media will have a field day with it. Think of the headlines. FBI blasts dentist drill sounds at children. Jamar looks away for a moment, then turns back to Nessner. All right. I'll talk to Schwein and have him call it off. But I want results from you and your team in a hurry. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you hearing me out on this. Nessner leaves Jamar's office. It's nearly midnight. Time to head back to the hotel and catch a few hours of rest. But when he arrives at his hotel room, he immediately picks up the TV remote. Somehow he cannot resist watching the media's endless commentary on the siege. Just like the rest of the country, he thinks. The TV set flickers on. And there it is, Mount Carmel, lit up by stadium lights as usual. Except, now Nessner can hear high decibel screeches blaring into the compound. Nessner panics. How could they be doing this? Jamar just agreed to call it off. Nessner grabs the phone and frantically calls the command post. But the agent who answers apologizes and says Jamar already went home for the night. Nestor hangs up. He closes his eyes and clenches his jaws. The fragile trust he's built up with the Davidians was the only thing holding this together. But now, once again, that trust is broken. From Wondery, this is Episode 5 of Waco from American Scandal. In our next episode, David Koresh has a revelation that could lead to a peaceful exit, and the FBI briefs the new Attorney General about their aggressive plan to end the standoff. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to American Scandal ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you'd like to learn more about Waco, we recommend the book Stalling for Time by Gary Nessner and When They Were Mine by Sheila Martin. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Scandal is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written by Michael Canyon Meyer. Edited by Christina Malsberger. Our senior producer is Gabe Riven. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Jenny Lauer-Beckman, and Marsha Louie for Wondery. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Man. 
Each week on Alternative Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.